Whether you're 19, whether you're 49, whether you're 89, we're all asking more or less the same central set of questions about our life. Like the, the questions that are common for all humanity, for all people. Am I loved? What makes me okay? How do I decide what's true? And then there's this set of questions about the future. What happens next? What should my life be about? What does God want me to do next? And I think it's that cluster of questions about our future that is particularly poignant uh, at the start of a new year. New Year's is a little bit of a refresh button. It's, It's a time to pause and kind of ask, what's 2018 going to be like? Now, I know all of our resolutions are going to fail, and the gyms are going to be empty again in February, and we're all going to be eating sugar in like two days, okay? But this moment still invites a bit of reflection, doesn't it? I mean, what is God's will for my life in the coming year? What is God's will for my life in the years after that? And it's these very questions that James is addressing in our passage this morning. The brother of Jesus, he was one of the pillars of the early church, And he wrote to God's people then and God's people now. Um, And he is addressing the question you have definitely asked, whether you've phrased it this way or not. What is God's will for my life? Does he have a plan for me? And if he does have a plan, could he be a little more specific, please? All right? So let me read our passage from James 4 this morning, and then we'll jump in and take a look at what James has to say. So this is from James 4, and we'll just do 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. Jesus, as we open your word this morning, I pray that you would meet us in it with great power. I pray that you would convict our hearts, but also comfort us with the great promises of your gospel. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so James answers our question, what is God's will for my life? By saying we need to hear and internalize three things, all right? We need to hear a harsh critique before we get going. And then we need a new metaphor, and then we need an eternal calling. So a critique, a metaphor, and a calling. I tried to get that second one to start with a C, but it wasn't going to fit, so it would have been forced. A critique. James wants us to consider our posture towards the future. How do you decide what to do next in your life? Like, just practically, how do you make decisions about the future? How do you move into that uncertainty? Is it with confidence? I mean, you sort of like... Sure of yourself, or is it with some anxiety and with some fear? Maybe it's with indifference. What kind of person are you? Are you the kind of person who needs to know how all the details are going to line up, at least as far as you can see into the future, before you can make a decision here? Or are you sort of like a gunslinger, you know, just ready, fire, aim, or fire, ready, aim, whatever? Um, Do you get antsy if you don't see a change on the horizon? Or are you the kind of person who wants things to pretty much stay the same way they are forever? Okay, it's interesting. However you answer those questions, whatever your disposition is towards the future, and we're all wired differently, 
this critique from James, this harsh critique from James, applies pretty much equally across the board, no matter what you are like. And the severity of his language is pretty startling. Verse 13, he describes the mindset of people making plans. He, Today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, this is like a straightforward business plan, right? This is like everyday stuff. It's an investment opportunity. It's a new job. It's a new city. It doesn't sound overly um, rash or overly cautious. They're thinking ahead, but they're not thinking so far ahead. They're being presumptuous. Uh, It actually sounds really responsible and really reasonable and normal. So why is the Bible's comment on this plan that it's evil boasting from arrogance? Like, where did that come from? Uh, We're taken a bit back. I mean, this is exactly how I think about my future all the time. And if you're anything like me, I can imagine that you're the same. The assessment seems a bit harsh. But James is saying that when we go about our days and our lives making decisions without any reference to God, without any reference to his design and his control, any acknowledgement of his sustaining hand in our life, uh, without gratefulness for his gifts that he's lavished on us, without any reverence for his reign over all things. In other words, when we live and make decisions as if God doesn't exist, whether it's responsible or rash, whether it's uh, excited or fearful, whether it's, you know, uh, I need things to change or I want them to stay the same, if we're making decisions without reference to God, it reveals a heart that we think we control our lives. And James is saying it's spiritually arrogant and it's evil boasting. What it is, it's a declaration of independence from our creator and king, rebellion from his fatherly care. James might even go so far, if he was writing today, as to call it functional atheism. Okay, We're living as if God doesn't exist, even if we believe he does. Now, James can be like this. He's a bucket of cold water. Remember the cold water challenge a few years ago? There were people on Facebook dumping buckets of ice water on themselves. That's James, okay? That's the book of James in the Bible. He just like dumps a bucket of ice water on you. What feels totally normal to us, totally intuitive, totally reasonable, he dumps a bucket of water on you and says, nope, Evil, boasting, spiritually arrogant, functional atheism. But if what the Bible says about sin is true, this actually makes a good bit of sense. All right, If sin is not just the bad things we do, if it's not just the selfish decisions and the, and the foolishness and the harm to others, but sin is actually a disposition of our hearts to forget God, our default mode of not wanting him as our king, then what can feel very normal and very reasonable and very rational um, can at the same time actually be arrogant and evil rebellion against our king. We live in a world we did not make, and we're moving through it with bodies that we did not create and with hearts that we can't even keep beating on our own. And we earn money using minds we didn't make and energy we didn't produce. And we got our jobs and connections through, you know, pedigrees or resumes or values that we inherited from other people. Everything about our life is a gift. Everything about us is a gift from God. And yet ever since the fall, we move through this world without reference to him 
and it feels normal, and it feels obvious, and it even feels responsible. Neither too cautious nor too rash about the future, but James says, entirely wrong. Instead, he writes, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live uh, here and do this or do that. It's a declaration of dependence, not independence, a heart of submission, not autonomy. It's a return to the way we are designed to live in the world. And so how do we begin to train our minds and our hearts to live with reference to God in our everyday life? Even in the small day-to-day stuff that makes up so much of our days, how do we turn from evil boasting and functional atheism that can feel so normal and reasonable to living as sons of our Heavenly Father, citizens of our Heavenly King? Well, James says the way to do this, the way to start training our minds and our hearts, is that you need a new metaphor, okay? Now, my mother-in-law, who's been around the last couple weekends, some of you met her, she lives down in Denver, and she has this little plaque hanging on her wall with some, you know, Dutch folks painted on it, and maybe some tulips, um, and then a bunch of sayings, a bunch of metaphors with their corresponding goals for life, okay? So... Um, listen to a few of these and ask yourself, which of these is my metaphor? How do I think about my life? Life is a gift. Accept it. Life is a challenge. Go meet it. Life is an adventure. Dare it. Life is a game. Play it. Life is a duty. Perform it. Life is a puzzle. Go solve it. Life is a struggle. Fight against it. There's like 15 or 20 of these that go down the list, these metaphors, and each contains a nugget of truth. But what's fascinating is how you can see the metaphors that we use to frame the story of our life also shape the trajectory for what we think life is about, right? I mean, a successful life um, is is going to look different depending on what your metaphor is for life. It'll shape how you move into the future. So maybe... A personal example to kick things off, okay? One of my default metaphors, for better or worse, it's just the way I am, uh, if I'm being honest, is that life is a competition to win, okay? I just love competing, kind of thrive on it. Grew up playing sports. um, And there are certain settings where this metaphor is great, right? It's really life-giving. So when a bunch of middle-aged men all put on Lycra and go out and ride together on the roads, like, that's a great place for that metaphor to kind of shine. You know, I can uh, get my competitive juices flowing and all that. Um, But there's other places in the world where this metaphor that life is a competition to win is not life-giving. It does not shine. How about marriage, for an example, okay? If you try to win your marriage, whether you win or lose, you lose, okay? Marriage is not about winning. So my gracious wife has gently, over the years, helped introduce new metaphors into our marriage than just winning and losing, okay? And I'm thankful for that. So one of my default metaphors is that life is a competition to win. What's yours? Is it that life is a duty, And the grid through which you interpret a successful day or a failed day is how you performed your tasks, how many things you knocked off, accomplishments you did. Did you finish the checklist for the day? Well, that makes it a successful day if life is duty. But what if your metaphor is that life is an adventure? Well, now you have a totally different grid for what success looks like. And now, instead of accumulating tasks, we're trying to accumulate experiences, aren't we? We're trying to bag peaks. 
We're trying to bag lines on our skis. We're trying to get an Instagram-worthy photo of our next meal. We're trying to, uh, like, was your day epic, right? That becomes the grid through which you interpret success instead of was your day productive. See, your metaphor shapes how you interpret success for your future. And what's fascinating is that James offers us a metaphor that my guess is none of us would have picked on our own. Look at verse 14. Here's a metaphor he intends to totally reorient your posture towards the future. What is your life, he asks? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Gone. We lived right next to Lake Michigan when we lived in Chicago. And on my, on my runs, morning or afternoon runs, I would always run towards the lake and run along this path, and there were these big rocks on the, on the coast of Lake Michigan. And on windy days, you know, it's the windy city, so this happened a lot, the, the waves would come crashing into those rocks and shoot, little, uh, shoot spray up into the sky. And when it was sunny, it was gorgeous. These droplets would kind of flash into the sky, they'd catch the sun, they'd glimmer, and they'd hang there for a moment, and then they'd crash right back into the rocks. James is saying... You and I are a droplet suspended in the air over Lake Michigan, and we rise, and we catch the sun, and it's glorious, and then we crash right back down into that lake like that. We are a mist that vanishes, glorious for a moment, and then gone. The psalmist writes this way in Psalm 39. Listen to his prayer. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Have you guys ever prayed that prayer? And neither have I. Let me know how fleeting I am. Like, that's not my morning prayer. He goes on. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. James is drawing from this language from Psalm 39. He's saying that your, your life is a breath that it disappears you know, on a cold winter's day into the wind. Your, your life is a handbreadth that's six inches long on a line that goes into eternity. Verse 12, the psalmist concludes, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace from my tears. For I'm a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. You and I, like our fathers and our ancestors before us, we live in this world as guests as sojourners, as journeyers, as pilgrims, and our stay here is short. James wants this to be one of the primary metaphors through which we understand our life and interpret our success, okay? The brevity and the impermanence of it. And what he's saying is that if life really is this short, if it really is a mist, if it is a handbreadth, if it's a droplet of water suspended over Lake Michigan for a moment— then the only things that matter here are also the things that matter into eternity, okay? The the only things that have weight and substance here are the things that have weight and substance forever in the family of God. And this means that God's will for our lives now has to have eternity in view. And so James points us not just to God's will for our life here, but far beyond it, into an eternal calling. And again, though, he's a, you know, he's the bucket of cold water challenge kind of book. And so he does it in such a James way. Okay, so this last verse of our passage, verse 17, he wraps up these thoughts by saying, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. Now, we are reading through this and we're thinking, wait a second, weren't we just talking about making future plans? 
And now you're bouncing over to following God's commandments in the Bible, and James says yes, and I haven't changed the topic at all. But to see why is what we need to do. We need to zoom out for just a minute from James, and we need to look at uh, the way that the Bible talks about God's will, okay, from kind of a wider perspective. And then we'll dive back in. And I think what James is driving at here is going to make more sense. So this will just take a couple minutes, but I have found it really helpful to to consider these three ways that the Bible discusses the will of God in our life, okay? So the first way is this. One way the Bible talks about God's will is that God always gets his way. What do we mean? Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, what's this saying? This is saying that God's will is whatever happens in the world, okay? So whatever happened to you this morning, that was God's will because God sovereignly is in control of all things. It's a basic fact like gravity. God reigns as king. So that's one way we think about God's will. Here's another one. Not only does he get his way, but he reveals his way to his people. So in other words, God tells us what a good life looks like, what true humanity, what flourishing in his world looks like. And we read these in commands all over the Bible. So we read things like, be joyful always, love one another, don't get drunk, show hospitality. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he's really explicit. He says, give thanks in all, circum- in all circumstances. This is the will of God for Jesus Christ in your life. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Be grateful always. No matter what happens, thank God that it's happening. That's God's will for your life. Okay, so we have these, these the Bible is chock full of God's commands. It's, it's the way that he has designed the world to work, and he's calling you into that kind of life because he knows it's good for you, and he loves you, and he wants you to flourish. So, these first two ways the Bible talks about God's will, that he always gets his way and that he reveals his way, make up about 99% of the way the Bible talks about God's will, okay? But every once in a while, in very unique circumstances, God gives specific direction through special revelation to one of his followers. This might be like God roadmaps the way or something. I haven't come up with a catchy title for that one. Acts 9. There was a disciple uh, at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said, Rise, go to the street called Straight, and the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. He's praying. He's seen a vision. Um, and a man named Ananias will come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Okay, that's specific directions to a specific person doing a specific thing with a street address. Okay, like that's specific will of God intervening in this man's life through a vision. And the Bible spends 99% of its time talking about the other kinds of God's will, but what do I spend 99% of the time wishing I had? That kind of God's will, right? Like these like roadmap directions for what I should do next, how I should make decisions. This is the stuff we want from God. More of that, right? Like that's what I'm talking about. Should I take the job or not? Should I marry this person or not? What exactly should I do with my retirement? Where should I go to school? Where should my kids go to school? Does God have that sort of specific plan laid out for your life? For sure. He knows everything that will happen. He's in control of all things. 
Is he going to tell you the specific plan for your life? Probably not, okay? Uh, There is no biblical reason we should expect these sort of intervening visions from God. Nowhere in Scripture does it promise a step-by-step roadmap for our life. It's rare in the Bible. When it happens, it's almost never being sought by the people who who it happens to, And when it happens, it almost always results in more risk, more danger, more suffering for the person who God intervenes in their life, okay? So be careful what you wish for. The important thing to understand here, though, is this. God doesn't withhold his specific plan from us because he doesn't care about us or because he doesn't care about these kinds of things. The Bible gives great dignity and value to all the details of our life. The smallest, most mundane things with Jesus, are infused with resurrection and eternal meaning. The Bible gives us guidance. It gives us wisdom. It gives us a community of believers with best practices throughout the centuries. We weren't designed to make decisions on our own, and God has given us resources for wisdom to draw from the church to help us navigate life. But the flip side of this coin is also important. And this is where I've really seen it in the lives of college students, but I think it applies far beyond the lives of college students. There is a way that we can talk about seeking and discerning God's will and yet still be making our plans in what James would call an arrogant and boastful way. Okay, what do I mean? There's a pastor who I really like. His name's Kevin DeYoung, and he was at a church in Michigan. He just moved to North Carolina, but he wrote a great little book called Just Do Something, a liberating approach to finding God's will. Okay, short thing, full of wisdom, but in it he writes this. Our fascination with the will of God often betrays a lack of trust in God's promises and provisions. We don't just want his word that he will be with us. We want him to show us the end from the beginning and prove to us that he can be trusted. Do you trust God even when you don't have any idea in the world what might come next, or what might happen next? Do you trust him in the midst of your difficult circumstances that he has placed you in? Or, here's the question that kind of cuts to it, is security and comfort about the future a prerequisite to trusting God's reign in your life for you? See, to see, seek God's will is wise and good. To demand an answer before we're willing to live under his reign and trust his goodness, well, that's what James would call arrogant boasting and evil. The first sense of God's will is a fact. Everything that happens is because God wants it to happen. The third isn't really promised to us, and we expect it. And so James, in his pastoral heart, in his care for his people, in verse 17, is pointing us back to God's revealed will for our life so that we can confidently Um, so so that we can move into this world in a way that's full of life and flourishing for those who follow it. He says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's a sin. In other words, we know what God's calling us to do. He's laid it out all over his Bible. It's written all over his word. There are pages and pages of rich, life-giving commands that point to a joy-filled life following Christ. Here's another way a different author in the Bible put it. This is Paul in 1 Thessalonians. He says, here's the will of God. Oh, okay, now, now my ears perked up. Like That's how he starts the verse. Here's the will of God for your life. You want to hear what it is? How does he finish that verse? 
your sanctification is how he finishes that verse, okay? Here's the will of God for your life, that you grow more like Christ in 2018 than you were in 2017. God's will is that you will grow to embody Christ-likeness in every area of your life. And the truly lovely thing about Christianity is this. The real gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that the commands that fill the Bible, right? Be joyful, always be grateful, show hospitality. The commands that fill the pages of this book, they're not just good advice, okay? It's not just life coaching. It's not just, uh, you know, someone who's done it before who kind of figured it out and gives us the rule book and says, good luck, you know, I hope you guys do it. This isn't good advice. These are, these commands, if you follow Jesus, if you cling to him in faith and trust and hope, are also certain future promises about who you will become in him. Your life is a mist. My life is a mist. Our status in the world is the status of a guest. We're here for a moment, and then we go. But that is not our only status. See, in Jesus Christ, we also have the status of sons and daughters of the king who reigns over all things. And the the promise of the gospel is that we will not only be saved from our sin, but we will be made into something far lovelier and far healthier and far more whole and glorious than we can currently imagine. The promise of the gospel is that our time is short, but God will not waste a moment of our mist in creating us into the kinds of people he wants us to be. Now, whatever your reasons for being at church this morning, Uh, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time or you're here just investigating what he's about, maybe interested in Christianity, maybe unsure, maybe have doubts, whatever. Um, The the reason that you are here um, is one thing, but Jesus has you here for a whole other reason, and it may even be more than you think you signed up for, okay? Uh, We come to Jesus thinking we need some things, and then he comes to us knowing what we really need. Listen to C.S. Lewis talk about this in Mere Christianity. The moment you put yourself in my hands, he's writing from God's perspective, um, this is what you're in for and nothing less or other than that. Whatever suffering it may cost you in your earthly life, whatever it costs me, I will never rest or let you rest until you're literally perfect, until the Heavenly Father can say without reservation he is well pleased with you, As he said, he's well pleased with me. This I can do, and I will do, but nothing less than that. That's God's will for your life, okay? To be fully perfect, fully alive, fully human, and fully delighting in the relationship that Jesus has established for you with the Heavenly Father. That's his plan. And so what can feel like chaos to us in our life what can feel random and bumpy and winding and backwards, it's anything but random to God. He is in control, and he loves you, and in Jesus, he will make you whole. Let's close with what is probably my favorite promise in the Bible from Philippians 1. I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus will complete you. That's his will for your life in 2018 and 2019, and for all the days of your mist ahead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these promises are big. 
and they're rich, and it's hard to wrap our minds and our hearts around them. We pray that as we move into the new year tomorrow, 2018 would be a year where we know you more closely and that our lives reflect Christ more fully. I pray that you would begin and continue to answer the promise that you will make us whole and complete, not lacking anything. We know these things are true because your son has come to live and die and rise again so that they might be true. Help our hearts believe them. Help our lives reflect them. And I pray that this community, this church, this body would be an encouragement towards that end. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.